7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. In the radio studios of America, the technicians, the entertainers, the commentators, the administrative personnel daily unite their efforts in the creation of programs to please and entertain a vast radio public. You think about this guy, he's crazy music here, man. Did you uh, dig the rebound? Here, Listen, Sonny, you don't own that song. It's a published tune. Anyone can record it. You turned it down. You said you didn't like it. We simply didn't want to record it with an unknown. What about my arrangement? You'll see your lawyer. You can't copyright an arrangement. You're a thieving wreck. Don't honey me, you rock! Throw back on your rock, Snake! Find out my reasons on rock and roll music and why I preach against it, and I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. In lots of places, you see rock and roll was a big influence on juvenile delinquency. I 100% believe. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. Rock and roll has got to go. <laughs> And welcome to the Screwed, Blued, and Tattooed Radio Show. This is your host, Johnny Daggers. And it is a pleasure to be speaking to you today after a five-year hiatus. But yes, it is true, I have returned. And with me today, we have rockabilly sensation, Mr. Daniel Lee Perea. <laughs> Daniel, please give a big hello to our listeners out there in Radio Land. How do you do? Hey, we're doing well here, man. Always swinging. It's great to be speaking with you again. It's been, what, five, six years since we last spoke? Something like that. I know you best as a rockabilly sensation, going the whole way back to Dr. Daniel and the rockabilly vampire days. Uh, but I've also found out since then, which this kills me because we've never discussed this when you were on the show last uh, not only are you a talented musician, you're a pizza blogger, a gamer, a comedian, actor, and a filmmaker, which is something we should have spoke about before. Um, but let's do that now. So if memory serves correct, you started your career in film in 2007. Is that correct? That sounds about right. And uh, that was with your film entitled The Picture. Yeah, The Picture. Um, trying to learn how to use video editing software by making a couple of uh, crummy, crummy music videos that may be haunting the internet somewhere. Please don't look them up. I'll be terribly embarrassed. <laughs> you know they're going to run it. They're going to. Oh, I know that right feeling well. That. <laughs> they are. They are, and I have to say, I've Googled it, and uh, I enjoyed it. I think there was a lightning effect <laughs> in that program. I, I probably went a little crazy trying to put in everything, but I digress. Anyway, I. I uh, 
And I kind of cut my teeth going like, well, let me try and make some videos, and that will teach me how to use this software, maybe. And I started to make a little bit of sense out of it. And, uh, you know, once I kind of had some kind of handle on how to, the, how, how to do nonlinear digital editing, uh, when I was young, I was always kind of a film buff, and everybody sort of, um, you know, they daydream about like, ah, I should make pictures, I should be in the movies. I want to, you know, I want to be the next insert director here. And um, so, you know, I, I, I uh, came up with a, a concept and just tried to make like a short narrative film out of it and submitted it to the uh, Magnolia Film Festival in 2007. And because I, I'd been to that festival once or twice and I sort of had in my head like, oh, I was really inspired by uh, the guy that started it. It was the first film festival in Mississippi started by one Ron Tibbet. And he had a way of just everybody throughout his life that he sort of touched. It's like he had sort of had this magic touch for like, you know, he, they would alter the course of their life in some way. Like he sort of had that mystical quality. And uh, I met him several years prior. I went to his film festival and was really inspired by it. And that's what kind of gave me the, on the back burner of my brain, like, oh, I should, you know, at least some point in my life, like, try and make just one project and, and get it in that festival. And that was really my only goal ever. And uh, now I do video work professionally, like, all day, every day. I should be doing it right now, but instead I'm talking to you. But anyway, uh, I, I submitted it. I submitted to the film festival. Uh, by that time, Ron Tibbet had passed away in a tragic car accident. And uh, I went to that film festival. They actually gave me an award. And that, you know, I guess I was hooked. I started uh, pursuing projects. And now you're in the pictures, kid. <laughs> well, that must have uh, really spurred you, though, because after that, uh, two years later, you went into your next film, uh, another short, which is entitled Faithful Departed. And I have to admit, I loved that, uh, well, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. Uh, the film never did get completed, but what we did see or what we're able to see on YouTube uh, is really phenomenal. So tell us a little bit about Faithful Departed, and you had some hardships with that. Yeah, um, I, I was trying to do some things in a, uh, for, me, well, for me it was an experimental way. I had this theory, like, I think uh, there's this hill on... We're, we're, you know, we're in Mississippi, so, like, every other thing is a Civil War battlefield. Like, it was this uh, large open park that had once been a Civil War battlefield. They had a hill and a horizon and, like, a tree, and I was like, I think I could use that uh, during the right time of day as, like, a, a natural blue screen, and maybe I can key it out. Of, I was trying to, like, do some things with silhouette, and um, uh, I, I was sort of uh, most of the way through the project trying to complete it and replace certain elements and, and replace certain voiceovers. I think my voice may be in it and I was never intended to be. And a hard drive failure happened. I, I lost all the project files. I lost all the assets. And I, I think burned to disk as like a test to look at a, what it looked like on a TV. I, I think I had like a like a working copy of it. And it was the only surviving copy. Uh, I kind of got sad and wrote it up as like a lost cause. Uh, I had a, somebody suggested like, well, you know, I, I think it's got something. Why don't you submit it to a film festival? See what happens. So it, it played in a couple of film festivals. It actually won an award to my shock and amazement. Uh, you know, that's how things always happen. When you project. fear the worst, you're like, oh, God, this is this just didn't work out. It's going to be bad. And then you end up winning an award. I've, I've been there before, and it's, it's such a great feeling. Um, 
the one thing that I've loved always about your music, but then I saw when I did Google you and uh, started looking up some of your trailers is that you make cameos uh, in several of your films where you're a rock and roller. And uh, I thought, well, this is a fantastic way because in the early days with Dr. Daniel and the Rockabilly Vampires, the themes were, you know, B-movie horror, B-movie sci-fi. Uh, and it kind of comes full circle now that you're able to make your own films and then, you know, have a cameo in your films. So let's talk a little bit. I saw a trailer for uh, Ocho, the arachnid from hell, and uh, I loved it. Also, I saw a trailer for It Came From Beyond. Um, so those two trailers, you really show your love for the early 1950s B-movie horror sci-fi films. And... Uh, it really reminded me of like Creature with the Atom Brain or the Mole People. So let's talk a little bit about that. Grew up partially outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And for some reason, there's something in the water of Ohio that they have more horror, late night horror hosts per capita than any other state, it seems. Uh, and so there was a guy that I watched when I was a kid named Superhost. And he, would, he had a show. It looked kind of like a W.C. Fields type character in a Superman costume. And he, he would he would uh, play on Saturday afternoons, and he would show movies like um, uh, The Fly with Vincent Price and a lot of Godzilla movies, uh, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and stuff like that. So I just sort of grew up being indoctrinated, baptized in the, the toxic waters of Lake Erie, as I like to say. Yes. <laughs> uh, just sort of grew up with that. It always sort of stuck with me, and I just, you know... Uh, I, I, I got moved down to the Deep South when I was uh, young, and I don't know, I just sort of suffered culture shock of things are very different uh, in very rural parts of the Deep South, especially like 30-something years ago right? than they are now. So uh, I don't know, I guess uh, it's just something I've grown up with and I always had a love for, and it's just it works its way into my uh, music and other art forms, and it's just you know it's it's what's inside me, so it just oozes out. Right, right. Well, you had mentioned Ohio, and I'm a huge fan of the Cramps. Um, and but the one thing that I like about you though is even though you play rockabilly music and you have that horror influence, uh, there's something about it. I think that the reason why I'm drawn to your music just as I am the Cramps is that you, you don't, you don't, there's nobody else that sounds like Daniel Lee Perea at all. You have your own unique style, uh, even though there's other bands out there that are doing similar things. Um, I see that you come from a, you're a third generation musician. That's right. Uh, so is that from your mother or father's side? Oh, uh, that's from my mother's side. Um, my maternal grandfather uh, and his brothers, like they would get together and like they would just, you know, pull out, guitars and banjos and mandolins. They would just pick on some bluegrass music when I was uh, uh, very, very little. And, you know, throughout my childhood, like, uh, they'd just get together every once in a while and just jam. Um, my great uncle had, uh, you know, he was retirement age, so he had, you know, free time. And so he formed, like, a bluegrass band that, that gigged professionally for a while. It was called Bluff Creek. I'm sure that couldn't have been the only <laughs> band that he had throughout his life. I'm sure there was others that he didn't know about. Um, my grandmother's brother, and, and nobody told me this when I was growing up. That's the amazing part. Is uh, uh, I, I like I knew it was like this quiet uncle, great uncle that I had, and like he would come visit once in a while. He kind of had this bossy wife, <laughs> and he wouldn't say much. She kind of did all the talking for both of them. I never knew that much about him. 
And a long time after he died, uh, you know, I think going through some old things, like my mom turned up like a flyer. It's like, uh, uh, Eddie Burns and the Nighthawks. I'm like, well, what is this? She says, oh, that's your uncle. I'm like, what, what, uncle, who, what uncle is this? Like, oh, that's your uncle. He had a nickname. It's like, that's your uncle so-and-so. I'm like, what? That's him? His name's Eddie? It's like, I thought it was something else. It's like, no, his name was Eddie Burns. It's like, he had a band? He played music? It's like, oh, yeah. He had a band? Oh, yeah. You know, one time, like, uh, he booked a gig with Elvis in Memphis before Elvis, like, blew up really big. But he got a flu and he couldn't play it. And I was like, why? Why did you never tell me this? My mom says, oh, I just think you didn't think you'd be interested. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, well, that's fantastic. So uh, music's always been a part of your life. And you come from, you know, Americana, bluegrass uh, type family. Uh, how does your family take to your music? Oh, uh you know, my, my grandfather was like sort of the uh, 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 strong, silent type, and he's one of those tough characters that like is not really big on compliments. <laughs> I understand that. And, and, and you know, he, you know, you just never, you can never really read him. Like there's time, he, he always had this sort of intimidating presence, and it always seemed like he was maybe grumpy. But then he'd like surprise you by just like saying something silly or goofy or making a joke come out of left field you're like whoa he's you know he's joking around he's in a good mood i had no idea you just never nearly knew where it was at so i never uh i always felt like uh because he came from a, a really hard scrabble existence when he was young that you know and rightfully so like he believed uh my generation had it a lot easier and i think he kind of like thought you know oh, this generation's soft and lazy because we were <laughs> yeah and uh, so I, I never got the sense that he was proud of me until um, there was a, a time that I was at a thing called Cash Bash, and I ended up jamming with um, uh, W.S. Holland, Fluke Holland, uh, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins drummer in Sun Studio at 706 Union, as a matter of fact, which was amazing. I got, like, a couple of pictures of it, and I took it back home and, like, showed him, like, the pictures and the autograph, and I gave him a copy, and he just kind of, like, you know, I was like, oh... Cool, you know, like he sort of nodded at it and said, like, he didn't really say much about it, but I was told later on, like, when people would come over, like, he would point the stuff out, like, he put it under glass, like, on his coffee table, and he pointed it out and be like, hey, see that? That's my grandson. He's with, uh, he's with Johnny Cass's drummer there. So, I was like, wow, he's bragging about me. I actually did something to make him proud. So, I guess... It was just one of those things where, like, you never really know, like, is he proud of you or you want to make him proud and you don't know how, and it turns out maybe he really was and just didn't know how to say it. <laughs> I understand that very well. I have uh, probably more of my family is like that than not. And then you do. You get that you get that one moment, and it's like, wow, this whole time I thought they just thought I was a fuck-up or, you know, they didn't like what I was doing. And then you get that one moment. It's very special, so that's very cool. Um now, with that being said, we'll leave off here. I want to lead into our first commercial break. So I have a surprise for you. You're probably wondering what in the hell. Uh, we are going to start off this first break by going into the audio for your trailer, Ocho, the arachnid from hell. And then we're going to follow that up. Uh, <laughs> we're going to follow that up by one of your new tracks, which is entitled Fireflies. So without further ado, here's Ocho, the arachnid from hell. And remember, we'll be right back, so don't turn that down. Down, down, down. It's shocking. The atomic age terror that nothing can stop. There's no way to stop it. 
It can't die. The eight-legged monster that breaks the laws of nature. There's no law against giant spiders. See, science gone awry. See, genetic freaks on the loose. See, toxic radioactive web. Communist threat. Do the Americans suspect you are a double agent? See, rock and roll juveniles run wild. The movie so shocking, it was banned in three countries. Ocho, erected from hell. Come in. Well, hi, son. What you doing, Dad? Just getting ready to start my day. By shaving? Yes. Every decent man wakes, showers, and shaves. And then you're ready to start your day? Close, but not quite. Well, what you got to do next, Dad? Well, the next thing I do is pour myself a cup of coffee. And then you start your day? Almost, son. While I enjoy my delicious cup of Java. I turn on my favorite radio station, WSBAT. And then you're ready to start your day? Yes, son. Now I am ready. WSBAT puts that extra spring in my step that I need to get to work each day. Have a good day, son. Boy, I can't wait until I grow up so that I can start my day by listening to WSBAT. Why wait? Who are you? I'm your random narrator. Whether you're young or old, WSBAT is the perfect way to start your day. Gee, thanks, random narrator.
And if you are just tuning in, we are here with Rockabilly Sensation, a toxic Avenger in his own right coming from the murky waters of Ohio, Mr. Daniel Lee Perea, and you were just listening to one of his new tracks entitled Fireflies. Welcome back, Daniel. Good to be back. You know, speaking of horror movies, I actually got two mugs on my desk right now. One's, uh, I don't even think it's a real movie, but it's uh, the Terror of Dracula, like faux movie poster. The other one is a mug of Goulardi. Oh, okay. I doubt anybody listening is old enough to know who that is because I shouldn't be old enough to know who it is either. Ah, but it was but the, uh, sort of the original horror host in Cleveland. Yes, yes. And actually, I'm sure that probably some... Eh, it depends. If this would have been the old radio show where the, all the horror fans were listening in, very possible. Um, so if you're out there and you know who Goulardi is, email me. Let us know. Let Daniel know. Um... So we were discussing your film career, and one of the coolest credits on your filmography is that you directed a video for Jimbo Mathis, formerly of the Squirrel Not Zippers, uh, for one of his tracks entitled White Buffalo. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was a, that was a really interesting experience. Um, Jimbo Mathis is a really super talented guy. Um, you know, I actually think that he went... I think he studied music in, in higher education, but I don't think he likes to talk about it because I think he if he feels like it interferes with like his uh you know like a uh, dirt dauber credibility or something. <laughs> but, right, right. Uh, he actually is my neighbor. Like he only lives a couple doors down from me, less than half a mile away. And uh, so he was originally from North Mississippi. Uh, he's based out of uh, Oxford, like I am now. And, you know, we, we sort of, you know, I ran into this guy 
at least four or five times around North Mississippi and was never, I always wanted to meet him and it never quite happened, weirdly enough. Like, you know, I think uh, he was he was playing a gig somewhere and I was like, you know, I never met him and my girlfriend at the time was like, really? I was like, yeah, just nobody ever bothers to introduce me and like I was going to walk over and say hello a couple times and always got interrupted for some reason and by the time I looked back again, he'd always be gone. He's mysterious like that. Anyway, Long story short, like, I ended up just knowing him through the community. Like, we were running into each other in town from time to time. And uh, um, he was uh, making some videos with his uh, friend and colleague, the Reverend Robert Earl Reed was his name. And um, I was watching the videos, and I thought, like, oh, man, like, you know, I could make something on the level of that. So we just kind of walked up one day, my then-girlfriend and I, and, like, sort of pitched him, like, Hey, uh, well, how would you feel about us making a music video for you? And I think his first reaction was probably like, oh, it's a sales pay. Like, you know, how much is this going to run? It's like, no, I mean, we just want to do it because we like you. And then I, I guess he couldn't turn down a free offer. So he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> he's like, maybe, maybe you should do my track, White Buffalo. It's going to be the title track off my new record. It's like, oh, that'd be cool. It's about Tupota, the White Buffalo. You know, he died over there in Tupelo. He's like, oh, okay. Because uh, it was a, an actual white buffalo kept at this place called uh, the Tupelo Buffalo Park. Um, and, you know, I'm sure everybody's aware white buffaloes are considered sacred in, in various Native American cultures. And um, so Jimbo was going to play uh, a gig in Marksville, Louisiana with his band. And it was coinciding with. A, there's a, a, a tribe of Native Americans down there, and they're going to have a powwow. And he's, you know, really good friends with them, apparently, and talked to them about, like, uh, would it be okay if I had, like, a video crew, like, film uh, footage of the powwow to be included in the video? And they were like, well, for you, it'll be okay. <laughs> so he came back to us, like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we got permission, like, we can film whatever we want, and, you know, you can, we can do whatever. And I'm like, wow, what an honor. I, I don't think they let too many people do that too often. What I understand, so right. we went down to this. Uh, it was hosted at a basically a, in the um, at a large outdoor facility that was adjacent to a casino down there. And we stayed in the casino. Uh, I got in the elevator and looked looked to my left one day, and it was like a guy that looked really familiar. I'm like, "Are wait a minute? Are you the dude from Cajun Pond Stars?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm busted." <laughs> so that was surreal. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, we shot all this great footage of uh, Native Americans doing uh, traditional dances, and uh, the raw footage is great. Uh, you know, they did traditional songs, and we weren't really allowed to use any of those songs. Um, we didn't need them for the video anyway. But just getting to, to be part of the powwow and be invited down there and, and get to film the footage was a tremendous honor. And then, uh, you know, at a certain point later on, Jimbo was like, you know, we need, we need footage of buffaloes. Let's go over to Tupelo. We'll, we'll, we'll go to the Buffalo Park. And we'll, just, we'll just shoot the shit out of some buffaloes. It's like, oh, okay. So he had arranged, like, you know, <laughs> we went over there and uh, ended up in the back of a pickup uh, where I was sitting toward the front of the pickup bed, and he's sitting on the tailgate hoping he doesn't fall off, and he's, like, sort of trying to lip-sync along to his song while some dude just off camera is, like, chucking out, like, buffalo feed, trying to get him to follow us in his truck. 
and Jimbo's hoping this will fall off, and, and Robert Earl Reed is, like, shooting pictures with his phone and, like, playing the song on his uh, cell phone. <laughs> and Jimbo, at one point, like, he, he points it. He's like, look at that, they're fucking... It was like some buffalo had mounted another one, and I couldn't get the camera to turn on it fast enough. He's like, did you get it? I'm like, no. Nah. He's like, oh, man, that would have been funny. So, Well, that's actually cool that – I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Yeah, I mean it's it was a – it was a the whole thing was a surreal experience. Well, it, the one thing when I watched that video, it's a fantastic video, and it's really neat that you got to sit in with the Indians and actually film them. I was wondering to myself if that was stock footage or if you would actually film that. No, we did film that, and uh, it was it was fantastic. It was phenomenal. Well, the video went on to win an award. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I, I believe it won like a um, favorite music video and something they call the uh, the local voice. It's a regional uh, uh, entertainment paper. I think we were voted by the people like favorite music video that year, which is a tremendous honor. And that was your first music video, or not your first? No, I've, I've done I've done a number of them. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't tell you which number that was. Right, right. <laughs> well, other than the films and the music video. You're also working on a documentary, which is entitled, I didn't do it. Um, is this about your life? I feel like you're hiding something from me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I most certainly did not attempt to assassinate any presidents. Um, but you did wear an Elvis suit. Am I correct with that? Did I wear an Elvis suit? I don't know that I've ever worn an Elvis suit actually. Well, you did karate or something, right? No, 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 it wasn't me. Okay. Well, tell me then about the I'm way off track. Tell me about this documentary. <laughs> there was a, uh, 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 okay, the, the suit, the stage, uh, if you'll think back to when the tragedy of the Boston Marathon bombings happened, uh, these events were unrelated, but people didn't know that at the time. The, the bombings happened, and then right after that, these poison letters were sent to President Barack Obama. Uh, I believe Senator Roger Wicker and I think a Mississippi judge, uh, perhaps the name was Sadie Holland, if I remember correctly. So at the time when people didn't know what was up, like they didn't know, like, were they related? Were they unrelated? Was it all terrorism? Like what was happening? Was it like a throwback to the anthrax letters after 9-11? Nobody knew what was going on. And once people started investigating and tracing the letters back to what may have been the source, uh, you know, they've fingered a guy named Kevin Curtis who was uh, an Elvis tribute artist. And I think there were, shoot, I, I forget the number of agencies, at least I want to say like 13 law enforcement agencies that all collectively showed up at his house to arrest him, wow. which was a history like there are 13 law enforcement agencies. So there were, I mean, apparently like uh, uh, the municipal police, the county police, the state police, the federal the the state bureau of investigation, the federal bureau of investigation, capital police, ATF, and apparently the the, the post office themselves, like they have their own law enforcement really? branch. I think the ATF, um, uh, Homeland Security, like you name it, like they all <laughs> got in one place and surrounded this guy's house and arrested him because the letters were signed uh, "I am KC and I approve this message." <laughs> and the guy in question had a long history of uh. Uh, 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 he was fighting this cause of of black market uh, organ trade, and he would send all these photos to the various politicians. And he always signed them like I'm Casey. I approve this message. 
So it seemed like, oh, this guy is like a nut. He's off his rocker. Like he's trying to poison people over whatever this is now. Right. And once they held him for several days in custody and uh, we're grilling him and, you know, tell it's like, well, what do you tell us what to do? Like, what you you know you did it. You know they're trying to interrogate him, and like they couldn't get him to. They wouldn't tell him what he was arrested for at first. And finally, somebody said, like, tell us about the rice. And he said the rice. And he says, I don't. I don't even like rice. I don't eat rice. <laughs> Misunderstanding what the nature right. of the poison was. Long story short, eventually uh, his lawyers got him released, and. Uh, they started following and investigating and eventually arrested another guy who was a karate instructor. And the long and short of it is apparently these two were locked in some kind of weird feud with each other, a local feud because they're both in, you know, either the same town or the next town over. They were locked in some kind of weird feud with each other. And the karate guy hated the Elvis guy so bad that he tried to frame him for attempted presidential assassination. That is wild. It's it's a wild story that can really only happen in Mississippi, where truth is much stranger than fiction. So this karate instructor, I hope he's behind bars, because I don't want to find out that your organs have gone missing. Oh, they, yeah, they, they put him away, and, uh, you know, he, they, they had him locked away waiting for trial. While he's awaiting trial, I think he concocted, I heard, uh, this is a speculation, but I've, I've heard through the grapevine that he concocted this cockamamie scheme where he was going to, call somebody on the outside and be like, I want you to, you know, I got some rice and stashed away. I want you to put in a letter. I want to put, you put it in the mail. And I want you to send it here so that another rice and letter will come out and they'll quote unquote know that it wasn't me. Cause how could I have done it if I'm in jail? But you know, he was a self-professed uh, Mensa genius, but I guess he wasn't smart enough to figure out they record all your phone calls when you're in jail. Yes. That's normally how it goes. It's usually the most intelligent ones miss the the tiny, you know. Uh, yeah, so you didn't interview him, I'm assuming. Uh, how about the Elvis impersonator? Yeah, the Elvis guy. We were following him around as the subject of his documentary for uh, for quite some time and got to know his family. And you know, he was a he's an interesting guy with some some interesting uh, worldviews and and political ideas and. And thoughts on, on, on what he thinks uh, the, about the black market organ trade, which, which is a real thing. I just don't know to what extent <laughs> his specific ideas may be true. Right. Um, so where are we at with this documentary? Post-production? Pre- it is in post-production. Uh, there is actually like a, a cut of it that, um, barring like, so, you know, probably like a few IP clearances and, 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 and sorting out like the soundtrack and the, the main cut is, is done and past that, like, you know, it, it basically will go through like a, another round of revisions and finalizations. And then I think it's ready for distribution. It was uh, conceived and directed by and produced by uh, Melanie Eddington, who is also uh, a former journalist and she now runs the Oxford film festival. Wow. Okay. Well, I can't wait to watch that, so we'll have to uh, keep me posted on that for sure. What we're going to do, we're going to go into another commercial break, and this time we are going to play another one of Daniel's newer tracks. It is called Nickels and Dimes. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Pretend I'm not at home. Collectors won't leave me alone. I've got enough money to pay and scraping by each day. I'm going round round in a diamond town with nickels and dimes. Want to come over to my house? Nah, I think I'm gonna go play ball with some of the guys. Oh, come on! My parents just got a brand new Zenith 6312 tube radio. Nah, thanks for the offer anyway. I gotta practice my swing. You want real swing? You gotta check out this radio show that I found. My mother doesn't know that I listen to it. In fact, I'm forbidden until, well, I'm actually I'm never allowed to listen to it. Ah, why doesn't she want you listening to it? It's called the Screw. Blue and tattooed radio show. Oh, yeah. It's hosted by some guy named Johnny Daggers. It sounds bad. My mother said that he's a bad influence on me. You're always doing things your mummy tells you not to do. They play all this rock and roll. Rock and roll? Yeah, it's this new music. All the cool kids are listening to it nowadays. Come on. You can play baseball any day. Come over to my house. Let's listen to WSPAT. Nah. Thanks anyway, but I don't want to get in trouble. If my mother finds out, I'll, I'll be grounded for a week. Yeah, I'm. am just gonna go play ball. Boy, Billy, you just wait. You wait till I tell the rest of the gang. Tell the gang that you're too afraid to listen to the radio. Hey guys, hey, Billy's too afraid to listen to the radio. He's afraid he's gonna get into trouble. Listen, parents. If you don't want your child to end up an outcast like Billy. 
then let them listen to the screwed, blued, and tattooed radio show. It'll save your child years of therapy, which you'll have to pay for. So remember, don't turn that dial. The future of America is depending on you. This is your host, Johnny Daggers, and we are back. Not only are you here with me, you're also here with Mr. Daniel Lee Perea, Rockabilly Sensation. So, Daniel, we spoke a little bit about your yes. film career. We spoke a little bit about uh, weird body parts being traded and Elvis impersonators <laughs> that don't eat rice and all kinds of crazy things. Buffaloes, white buffaloes and Indians, all kinds of things. Uh, now, let's talk about your music a little bit. Uh, two years ago, 2016, you released a very bare-bones, stripped-down LP, which I absolutely adore, and uh, that is called Hard Times. So let, let's tell us a little bit about Hard Times, and uh, hopefully it doesn't include body parts. No, I don't believe there are any body parts involved, but uh, it was a, a project that uh, I had kind of gotten away from music for uh, for a while, uh, just sort of lost in the uh, the film and, and Elvis karate documentary world, and um, in order to try and you know get my foot back in the door of music, I was like, well, let me try and get something out on, on iTunes and something that's easily Googleable. Get get my you know uh, established brand awareness. Get my name out there. And one of the easiest ways to do that was by recording uh, just a solo album. That at the time I was uh, uh, in still am. I was really into a lot of the early blues guys from Mississippi, specifically like uh, uh, Mississippi John Hurt, uh, Sun House, and I particularly love Skip James. And by coincidence, uh, I'm, I'm friends with Dick Waterman, who managed all three in the 60s and was partially responsible for rediscovering uh, Sun House. Uh, I mean, you could write a whole book, the, uh, Dick Waterman, you could write a whole book about him. I think he's in the Blues Hall of Fame as a photographer. Uh, oh, there's a great documentary called Two Trains Running, which was sort of about the, the summer of adventure of a bunch of guys like trying to find Sun House and trying to find Skip James. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with that documentary, but I mean, if you're a music fan, you should definitely check it out. Uh, Dick Waterman figures in a lot of that. But I digress. Anyway, I love the intimate nature and just a stripped down, just a guy in his guitar nature of, of some of those early blues recordings. And although I don't specifically play blues that much, 
Uh, I want to do something kind of in that same vein or also in the same vein as the first Johnny Cash American recordings, which I also love. Fantastic recording. So it really gives the listener an up-close personal... I feel like you're in my living room sitting, playing to me. I, I really enjoyed the bare-bones nature of that album. Well, it starts out there. You know, you start out in the living room, and next thing you know, you're going to get, like, drowsy, and you're going to wake up in your uh, bathtub missing a kidney. No. Uh, yes. <laughs> we're going to make body parts. I felt that way now. quite a few times. <laughs> Does that happen to you? Oh, I woke up. My liver was smoking, sitting in the armchair next to me. Maybe should be in that movie. No, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I, I love the dynamic of, of loud rock and roll, loud, fast, high-energy rock and roll bands. I absolutely love it. But I also love the, just the quiet, dynamic power of an intimate solo performance. And, you know, I've watched many of them over the years uh, by many artists that were just fantastic. And I was trying to capture a little bit of that magic. I guess it's up to the listener to decide whether I succeeded or not. You definitely captured it. Definitely. Now, did you bump your head? Did you have a head trauma? I don't understand this L-Bop kid guy. L-B-Bop kid, yes. L-B-Bop, what is up with him? (laughs) Did you have some... Some type of accident there? Well, you know, actually, that guy was originally born by the name of Chris Gaines. Uh, that's, too, that's a two inside 90s joke. Nobody's going to get that. So you're you're reincarnated. No, no, no. Uh, you know, what happened no. was, um, uh, you know, previously I'd gone by, by Dr. Daniel and the Rockabilly Vampires. Um, uh, I'm still friends with those guys, and, you know, we don't really – play anymore we live in different places now and you know are different in different places in our lives and stuff and basically i forget i forget how l bebop kid exactly happened but there was something to the effect of uh i'm personally am in i have mexican heritage i'm half mexican uh on my father's side uh and i'm sort of fascinated by some of the early uh rock and roll musicians in who are also Latino, like Trini Lopez or Question Mark and the Mysterians. Of course, Richie Valenzuela. Ah, yes. Um, and uh, Freddie Fender, who's probably most widely known as a country and western sing- balladeer, uh, you know, he actually had like this previous career before he got into that later in life that not as many people know about, where he had a couple of different names that he went by, and he put out like Spanish language covers of like rock and roll songs and a few originals. And uh, you can find, like, clips of them on YouTube. They're just fantastic, very high-energy stuff. And uh, one of his nicknames was Eddie Con Los Shades, and another one was El Bebop Kid. And I like that so much, I think I was trying to play, like, a secret show under uh, a pseudo-moniker. Like, let me go by El Bebop Kids and, and just put posters around town so nobody will know exactly who or what it is. And, like, they have to, like, show up to, like, you know, see that it's me or whatever. And the nickname kind of stuck. People liked it. And I said, uh, ask people, like, what's what's easy to remember? Like, Daniel Lee, per, what, Perret, 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 how do you spell that? How do you say that? Or is El Bebop Kid, like, so much more catchy and memorable? And he asked some of the bars, like, what do you what do you want me to put on the sign? I'm like, well, you could put my name. You could put a nickname, El Bebop Kid, that just kind of I ended up getting stuck with. I sort of stole it from Freddie Fender. He wasn't using it. Uh and uh, they'd be like, let me just put El Bebop Kid. That's catchier. So I'm like, I guess it's catchier. So the nickname just kind of stuck. Uh, I probably shouldn't be using it, to be honest. I like it. 
But again, uh, Baltimore worked, uh, he's, he was doing good with the Freddie Fender. He probably didn't need LB Bob Kid nah. anymore. But there's really only one LB Bob Kid, and that's him. I'm the copy. Well, you're a good copy at that. Now, let me ask you, do you like standing in rain? Who likes that? It's cold. Do you really like standing around in the rain? You wrote an album about it, or at least a single. <laughs> I can't say that I do. I do enjoy it. It's romantic. So let's talk about this new single. It has a very Elvis Presley. We're back to Elvis Presley again. All right. Well, it has a blue moon feel to it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's probably intentional. I was try, probably trying to pick up some of that Sun Records vibe. Uh, you know, most people, when they think of Elvis, uh, well, the rock and roll fans may think of his early stuff, but, uh, you know, a lot of people are more into, like, the biggest. When they think of slow, quiet Elvis, they're thinking, still thinking of some of those power ballads or whatever. I'm like, I like that early stuff, like uh, like like Blue Moon. So I like the, the sound and the feel of that recording, and I was trying to emulate that a little bit. And uh, maybe I borrowed too much. You, you decide. You definitely didn't borrow too much, but I like, I love that song. I love it because you have that crooning voice, and I really, I, Years back, I told the world, you are the modern-day Roy Orbison. Do you remember when I called you that? It's a hell of a compliment. Well, I meant it, and I mean it now. You definitely have a voice to croon. So that, in all sincerity, Standing in the Rain really lets you showcase your vocal ability. But I also like the B-side. And yes, I understand this is the digital era, and we don't actually have 45s, and, and whatever. It's still a B-side to me. So uh, Nickels and Dimes. I enjoyed that song. Are you making any nickels and dimes doing what you're doing? You know, if if I was uh if I hit it on Easy Street, I probably wouldn't have written that song. <laughs> well said. Well, I enjoy it, and I think that we're gonna take our next break, and uh, we're gonna go into something a little special here, uh, with your permission and with your blessing, Daniel Lee Priya. Please set us up with this exclusive that you have for us. Ah, uh, yes. Well. There was a side project that I did several years ago. I called it my Misfits ripoff band. It was called Astro Casket. And um, I resurrected the name and did another EP side project more recently. And what you're going to hear today is the never-before-heard acoustic version of the song from Astro Casket, Nuclear Winter. Ladies and gentlemen, as Daniel mentioned, here is the acoustic exclusive, acoustic exclusive performance Nuclear Winter by Daniel Lee Perea. We've reached the curtain call. All great empires surely fall, and I know it's time for the end. The stone is rolling back on down the hill until it hits the ground, and you. Say we let the bombs all fall And bring your skeleton to ride the cloud To the other side Into our nuclear winter The song is now at its 
Let's go to trade our birthright for a diet soda And you know there's nothing left to play The crops are dying from the blight The darkness has almost consumed the light And I know there's nothing left to play Let's say we let the bombs off the screwed blued and tattooed radio show you just heard the acoustic version of daniel lee perea's nuclear winter daniel thank you for that exclusive and let's talk a little bit about the song well uh when i when i did the uh the second astro casket ep uh we were going through uh one of the most strange bizarrely strange and uncertain times in in modern American history, and uh, as a reaction to that, I just had to like write a whole bunch of songs really quick, <laughs> and Nuclear Winter was one of them. Nuclear Winter sounds cold. So, any particular moments in history that spurred you to write that? Because this was several years back, correct? Well, I think the inspiration was that um, the the unprecedented election of a uh, uh, basically like a, a strange eccentric millionaire or a pseudo-millionaire or a billionaire or, you know, WWE Hall of Famer reality show, game show host as a president put us in a sort of some of the most uh, strange political times, probably since the 80s when a Hollywood actor was president. And I felt like we were uh, possibly closer to the brink of nuclear apocalypse now the like the 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 closest we've been since probably the Reagan era that I I will remember all, all the movies and in you know uh, people trying to tell you your political opinion and feed you as a kid like oh the the Russians are coming and they're gonna uh, you know it's gonna be like the movie Red Dawn. Did you write it under a desk? No, I did not uh, duck and cover. Uh, ah, you know, the, I think it's a romantic song. We you're talking about dying together. That's romantic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the idea of, uh, you know, when things are uh, uncertain and you're like, oh, you know, the world may end. It, it always may end. I mean, you just never know, really, under any political circumstances. Um, I guess the frightening prospect of 
of some kind of a catastrophic annihilation, whether it be like extreme changing weather or whether it be nuclear war or whether it be uh, all, all, all the crops just dying off and dying, you know, the kind of things that were talked about in, um, you know, the class song London Calling, you know, these same cycles kind of keep happening over and over, like destructive and renewal and all that. And uh, I guess if I take any comfort in these in, in times of uncertainty, maybe it's the idea that we're all in it together. I like the togetherness, and it makes death less scary, if you think about it. I don't think my biggest fear of death is the actual dying part. It's about who I'd leave behind. And if you die together, that's really romantic. Not a bad way to go. But I don't want to go yet, though. I still want a long time. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a sense of sad fatalism to the song. To uh, I guess, you know, it's, it's sort of written from this place that... <laughs> When you go through like a, a rough period in your in, in your life or or just, you know, you have one of those days where you hate everybody, you know, you everybody kinda of feels every once in a while like they get frustrated and it's like, you know what? Just launch all the nukes and human beings are all terrible and let let's just get it all over with and we'll all just die all together at once. I imagine that's how you feel when you eat at a bad pizza joint. Is that what happened? Because I heard you're a pizza <laughs> blogger, so you ate it's... some bad pizza. And you wanted to nuke the world. Is that what happened? Well, I don't know that I've ever had pizza bad enough to make me want to nuke the whole world, but uh, I certainly <laughs> maybe felt like if somebody should get nuked, it, maybe the pizzeria should be <laughs> the, 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 the ground zero. Uh, yeah, I, I, I work uh, my, my wacky, strange, surreal day job is working for a PMQ Pizza Magazine. You heard that right. There is a pizza magazine, and I work for it. I did hear that. So what are the perks? You get free pizza, right? I do get free pizza. There's a, a pizza, basically a, like a full-blown like a commercial kitchen in the back of the office. Nice. And you travel. They pay you, they feed you, and, and they push you around. They send you places. All free. Oh, yeah. I've been I've been to um, uh, Canada, uh, Portugal by mistake. Uh, I've been through France, I've been through Japan, I've been to Shanghai, China, I've been to Italy about six times. Uh, I, I, you know, I've been all over the U.S., uh, driven up and down, you know, Route 66 a number of times, and uh, yeah, so I, I end up traveling a lot for this job, and the world becomes an extremely small place. Who makes the best pizza? It's up to the, uh, the, it's all in the eye of the beholder. In your personal opinion, you don't want to get in trouble, do you? You don't want to tell me who the best pizza <laughs> joint is. Uh, well, okay. Where, where pizza comes from, it, it originated in, uh, Napoli in Italy. Uh, and there were a couple of different places that, you know, you can make the argument that one or the other invented it. Let's just say they both co-invented it. Uh, there was a restaurant called Brandy. And uh, a man that worked there named uh, Raffaele Esposito. And then there was a, a place called uh, uh, Pizzeria Antica Port Alba, which was at the time like a bakery. And the thing that is now known as pizza is just one of the things that they made. It was just like a flatbread with some stuff on it. So these two places kind of developed it. And the original dish, as it is, you know, the, the, the very roots of the dish require like uh, it, it, to be cooked in an old world wood-fired oven it's somewhere around like you know 800 900 degrees and the tomatoes are tomatoes San Marzano that grow in uh, the ashy soil like in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius 
and they don't grow any they don't grow that way anywhere else like just like wine from different regions tastes different these tomatoes from here taste a certain way so once i tried like uh napolitana style pizza in napoli i was like oh so this is what pizza is supposed to taste like and everything else is trying to be this but it never can quite do it because you have to have those ingredients from that region so i guess that really is kind of the best pizza i've ever had that sucks for you, because it's not like you could just get in your car and go anytime you wanted. No. I mean, Do you bring a lot back with you to hold you over? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... I've, I've had some amazing pizza in a lot of different places, so... I mean, pizza... Like, I people ask, like, do you get tired of eating pizza? And I'm like, no, I never get... Like, I could literally eat it every day, and never, it would never get old, because the variety can be so endless, Um it's there's just no limit to what you can do with it. So I'm always interested in uh, what different pizzas people are going to come up with and all the different styles that come from different regions and, and how they even got that way. I concur. And I could eat pizza every day. And I love Hawaiian pizza for the record. Well, that's your opinion. <laughs> I never thought I would like it. It seems like a weird combination, ham and pineapple. I thought it tasted pretty good. So they pay you, you eat pizza. That sounds pretty good. Uh, you travel the world, and uh, in your travels, do you take the guitar? Do you play? Is it hard to play on a full stomach? Oh, uh, you know. After you've eaten an entire pie, you pick up the guitar and you play? I, I've never found that hard, no. I, I do travel around uh, with my guitar sometimes. Uh, sometimes my coworker Brian, uh, he also is a musician. Like, it, it depends on where we're going or what we're going there for. But there's been a number of times that we just, hey, hey you want to? You want to bring the guitars and we'll just make a gig out of it. We'll just like, well, you know, I'll just play music for people. So I've had the honor and the privilege of exposing uh, American roots music that comes from right here in Mississippi uh, to people in distant parts of the globe. I've gotten to play, uh, you know, in Italy. I've gotten to play in China. I've gotten to play at a Brazilian steakhouse that was weirdly located in China. I guess there's, you know, any steakhouse outside of Brazil, I guess it's not that weird. There was a Brazilian steakhouse in, in China, and like they had a Brazilian band full of Brazilians there, and I got to jam with those guys. So I was bringing like my American rhythm and blues music, and they were bringing their South American music, and we were presenting it to a Chinese audience. And uh, you, you know, I, I just I've gotten to have like a lot of really incredible experiences uh, traveling around with some of these. Uh, uh, some people call them the rock stars of the pizza industry. Some of these, these guys that are doing really interesting things with pizza. And they're all characters, too. And you're an ambassador. I like that. An ambassador of goodwill through rock and roll. It's, well, yeah, I like to, I like to think of it as a, it's like a, a great opportunity um, to represent the music that largely comes specifically out of this state that I, that I get to live in, Mississippi. You know, I travel around and people like, you know, maybe in Columbus, Ohio, they'd be like, Oh, well, where do you live at, man? They're like, well, I live in Mississippi. Like, Whoa, Mississippi! Like, wh what's that like? You might as well. The way they react sometimes, you might as well have told them that you live in like an Amazon rainforest. Uh, I guess Mississippi is like this mysterious and strange place because of all the negative press you hear on the news about it. But um, for all its problems of being uh, a very poor state with historically really poor leadership and um, being last on every list and, you know, all the, the perceived racism, and, and that is a problem. It's kind of a real thing. Uh, there's so much magical stuff about a place like Mississippi 
that can't, it, it, I really can't explain it. It cannot be understood. It can't be really explained. You can't really tell the story. I mean, you just have to like experience it. Um, so I'm wasting my breath, I guess. <laughs> no, never. Okay, well, so a lot has changed since we spoke last. You came back from traveling the world and promoting Mississippi and rock and roll and being a good ambassador like you are. Somebody shanghaied you and put a ring on your finger. That's, that's right. I, uh, I got... So how long have you been tied? Well, I got married back in uh, March to the love of my life, Paulina Afentakis. And, uh... Well, hello, Paulina! <laughs> so now she's... She looks lovely for you. Yeah, now she's along with this uh, strange, uh, you know, film and pizza and rock and roll bizarre life that I have that is too surreal to be able to fully explain. Um... <laughs> oh, I bet you she's one happy lady, though. I would be. You, If I wasn't taken, you could marry me, but you're taken, too, so... No, she's great. Like she's a, she's a, uh, you know, she's a real rock and roller herself. She she doesn't really necessarily play, but you know, she's got all the, the inked up tattoos. Uh, you know, she saw like oh, social distortion is coming and playing in, in Memphis. Should I get tickets? And I'm like, hell yeah, you should get tickets. And before I could even text her, she'd already bought the tickets. Um, you know, um, uh, she's she's sort of more into punk rock, and you know I, I I'm just really like uh, hung up on all these uh, these elder statesmen of like the original rock and roll movement, and so she's gotten to meet a couple of them through me, and uh, it's just sort of like you know it's it's great to to be able to share these experiences with her. Well, your kids look happy. I saw some of the photos of you guys, and you make a beautiful couple. So I'm very happy for you. Uh, what can we expect next? You're married, you've traveled, you've done everything. You always have an iron in the fire, multiple irons. Uh, what is next for you? A baby Daniel. Uh, I don't know about that, man. I think, uh, I think. Okay. <laughs> I think we're... We need a fourth generation now. Oh, uh, my brother's got that covered. <laughs> there you go. So what's next then? If we're not doing the babies, what do you got new coming out? Well, uh, I've got a book of, uh, uh, it's, it's a theme book of poetry that I've, that I've been working on. Uh, I think I actually put it on the market for all of like one day before I yanked it back off and decided like, no, it's not done. you got to make some tweaks. Uh, I have a, a themed book of uh, short stories and poems and then a play that I wrote. Uh, that's, they're all sort of like uh, based on or loosely inspired by Johnny Cash or, or certain ideas that come from his music. Uh, the play was uh, was actually I we, uh, we I I was contacted by a, a cool cat in Memphis named Mike McCarthy, who's like obsessed with like documenting the uh, the pop culture history of of, of Memphis, and uh, he had this cockamamie idea to like raise money for a Johnny Cash statue at the what is called the Galloway Church, which is the first place Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two ever played uh, like a real gig was in the basement of this church for, like, a, a bake sale. And so, basically, he ended up soliciting me to write a play recreating that event that he then somehow cast and, like, put on. And, like, so they did this play in the actual spin and recreated this performance in the actual space that it really happened. And uh, then uh, we all played, like, a gig upstairs, like, afterwards. And um, that play will be in the book. But uh, unbeknownst to me, like, I was coming uh 
I think Roy Cash Jr. showed up, and I had on my set list that I was going to play a cover of um, Oh, I'm having that one of those brain fart moments. Hold on. I get them all the time. I had it on my set list that I was going to play I Still Miss Someone. And then Roy Cash Jr. shows up, and he's like, yeah, I co-wrote that with John. And I'm like, oh, no. i got to try and play this song <laughs> for the guy that wrote the song. But um, So how did that go? Well, I mean, you know, we took a picture together afterwards. So I clearly didn't hate it. He didn't hate it or me. So I think we were all good. Uh, that guy, good. Roy Cash Jr. is an interesting guy. Like, he was a high-ranking uh, member of the uh, Air Force, and I think he ran the Top Gun program for a while. I wish I could have seen that play. It sounds very good. Well, you can't, but you can get the book. <clears throat> I will buy the book. I will. And everybody else out there should buy the book. And if we do want to buy your book, when you're uh, not traveling the world, and when you do get this book finished, where can we buy your stuff? It's going to be on uh, Amazon uh, under the title In Black. Uh, stories and poems inspired by the life and music of Johnny Cash, or something to that effect, and by D.L. Perea. For some reason, I didn't put all three of my names, just put initials instead. I mean, J.R. Cash, W.S. Holland, it seemed appropriate somehow. Right, right. Well, what else? Where else can they buy the rest of your stuff? Well, uh, I'm, I'm currently writing a chronicle of the strange and surreal life that has come with traveling around for the pizza magazine. And the working title is On the Pizza Road. We'll, we'll see if that sticks. Uh, I really like Jack Kerouac, so maybe I shouldn't borrow too much from him. I should come up with my own voice, perhaps. A slice of my life. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm working on that book. Uh, I recently have basically completed a memorial project, a memorial documentary project for a uh, law, legendary Mississippi law professor who passed away last year. And we played the, the short version for his memorial uh, service, his celebration of life. And I'm going to expand that into a longer documentary. So that's in the works. Nice. Well, Daniel, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, my friend. Always a good time. Uh, that's going to be all for today's show. We're going to leave here, and uh, what do you want to carry us out with, Daniel? Well, what do you got? Should we do Standing in the Rain? I think you should do it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here is Daniel Lee Perea's Standing in the Rain, and remember, we'll be back next month sometime. Who knows? I don't know, but the point is, do not miss. Thank you again for Daniel coming on to the show. We greatly appreciate you. See
Thank you. 